Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Molly Wood. I'm the host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech on National Public Radio, and I'll be your moderator for today. It is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce Robert Reich, the Carmel P. Friesen Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, senior fellow at the Bloom Center for Developing Economies, and best-selling author of The System, Who Rigged It, and How We Fix It. It is such a slim volume, and it contains so much. Professor Reich served in three national administrations and was the U.S. Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. He's the co-founder of Inequality Media. It's a nonprofit that uses the power of storytelling to inform and engage the public about the realities and the impacts of inequality and the imbalance of power in America. You can watch his videos every Monday and Tuesday on topics ranging from reimagining public safety, healthcare, social security taxes, and the socioeconomic effects of, of the pandemic. And if you don't follow him on Twitter or on Facebook, I highly recommend it. Professor Reich was also the co-creator of the award-winning film Inequality for All and the Netflix original Saving Capitalism. Please join me in welcoming Professor Reich. Well, hello, Molly, and thank you so much for for moderating this discussion. What a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and I want to ask you right off the bat, the probably the biggest question, the title of your book is The System, Who Rigged It and How to Fix It. So let's start at the beginning. Who rigged it? Uh, well, it's been rigged uh, over time uh, in incremental uh, steps uh, by people who have the political power uh, to change the laws and change the regulations uh, to help themselves. Uh, now, who has the political power to do that? Well, you go back 40 years and you see the biggest change in politics and the economy in the United States has been the concentration of wealth at the top and therefore the concentration of political power. So the rigging really has been done by a group that I call the oligarchy. Uh, it's, a, it's a good old fashioned Greek term, meaning uh, a small, rather, rather small group of people who have the wealth and the power and control over a society. Uh, we tend to only think of the Russians as having an oligarchy, Molly, but I, I think that the United States, uh, it's fair to say, either has one now or we are very shortly going to have one uh, because most of the wealth, or a great deal of the wealth, I should say, and power, uh, uh, the power that is necessary to rig the game to get more wealth. You see, it's, a self, it's sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. It's a, it's a vicious cycle, uh, is at the top. Well, and it, I mean, it really is cyclical. And you look at this sort of cycle throughout American history, you talk about the Gilded Age and the trusts. What was it, though? You write about this period after World War II, where America really did create this incredible expansion of the middle class. Capitalism appeared to be working for everyone. What were the forces 30 or 40 years ago that started this change and to where we find ourselves now? Well, it really was the largest middle class the world had ever seen, not just the United States. Uh, and the entire politics, our democracy, our economy centered on the growth of that middle class, not just stagnation, but the growth. Uh, it was possible for many poor people, uh, including many people who had been marginalized, including black people and Latino people and others, uh, to begin to join the middle class. Uh, and we had enough 
confidence in ourselves. And the middle class had enough confidence uh, that it embraced legal changes like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act, uh, which would further enlarge the middle class and enable more poor people, disproportionately black and Latino, uh, to join that middle class. Now, what were the factors that contributed to the growth of that middle class, you ask? Well, number one, uh, we all, I would say, virtually all of us had been through World War II, uh, and almost all of us had been through a Great Depression. And those experiences, those common experiences, uh, I think resulted in a degree of social solidarity. Uh, so that coming out of World War II, the CEOs of big corporations uh, did not get uh, 300 times uh, the salaries and compensation uh, as they do now of the typical worker. Uh, they typically got 20 times uh, the salary and the, the total compensation of the average worker. Um, it would have been unseemly not to uh, be given that social solidarity. Uh, banks were not running the economy. In fact, banking was kind of boring and it was thought to be appropriate that it was boring because after 1929, we clamped down on the old form of casino-like banking. Uh, we also made sure that unions had a fair shot at, uh, at, at increasing their membership so that by 19, the mid-1950s, about a third of the, the workers in the private sector were unionized. Now compare that to today when 6.4% of the workers in the private sector are unionized. Uh, but you see, uh, that enabled workers uh, because they were unionized and because uh, the corporation was not organized so relentlessly to maximize shareholder value, but was more organized around uh, the notion of stakeholders, uh, including workers and communities. Uh, so it was possible for workers to get a significant, not huge, but a significant portion of the gains from economic growth. Uh, and that in turn contributed to uh, a larger and larger middle class. You see, it was a virtuous cycle. And it worked well for the many, but apparently not well enough for the few. What happened? Was it just a matter of forgetting our history? I think it was partly a matter of forgetting our history. Uh, by the late 70s, early 1980s, corporate raiders, uh, you may remember them, they began to change the goal of the corporation from doing well by all stakeholders to doing well only by the shareholders and indeed siphoned off many of the gains that other stakeholders, such as workers and people in the communities uh, where the corporations did business, uh, were enjoying. Secondly, at the same time you had, and for much the same reason, you had uh, efforts by corporations to bust unions. And those efforts uh, had proved, uh, certainly by now, in fact, by the 1990s, when I was Secretary of Labor, it was very evident those efforts were proving successful. And thirdly, uh, you also had finance uh, growing and, and, and becoming much larger, breaking the laws, in fact, changing the laws. You know, it, after a certain point, a, a, an industry or a sector of the economy becomes so large and powerful that it exerts political influence and finance 
certainly by the 1980s, 1990s, was becoming powerful enough politically to deregulate itself or to have members of Congress and regulators deregulate finance. So, and that continued right up until 2008 and the, the financial bubble. But even now, uh, finance still co- controls a big, big portion uh, of the economy. And we could go on, uh, but you see that the, the, the shift really occurred, the big change really occurred uh, in the 1980s. You are, I want to talk about finance for a second, and you are particularly and personally hard on Jamie Dimon throughout this book. In fact, you address him directly in the beginning and the end of the book as almost the avatar of, I think it's fair to say, capitalistic hypocrisy. Why I'm, glad you, I'm glad you use those those terms. <laughs> I don't really use the term capitalist. This is paraphrasing. Yes, this is paraphrasing. Yeah. No, the reason I, 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 I entitled the book The System is because I really don't want to uh, create the impression or to further the impression that a lot of people have that all you have to do is get rid of certain people, uh, you know, get Donald Trump out of office uh, and get some of the captains of industry uh, changed. Um, to have a more equitable society. That's not really going to happen uh, just by moving people. And I chose Jamie Dimon as the kind of uh, the person I talk about mostly because Jamie Dimon is, uh, styles himself as a Democrat, capital D. He talks a lot about corporate social responsibility. He is the CEO of the largest bank in the United States, one of the largest banks in the world, J.P. Morgan Chase. And he seems to recognize many of the problems that we have in the United States in terms of widening inequality and an angry middle class, working class that can easily be manipulated. And yet he doesn't go the next step. He doesn't actually want to change the structure of power that brought him to power and enables him to be chairman of the Business Roundtable and to get a gigantic tax cut for big corporations and the wealthy uh, from the Trump administration and to get all the deregulation that corporations want from the Trump administration and to do everything else that is going on now. Uh, it's, it's, you, you use the word hypocrisy. I think it's, it's self-delusion. Uh, and that's what worries me about a lot of corp- so-called corporate social responsibility. The most responsible thing that Jamie Dimon and large corporations can do uh, is fight to prevent Jamie Dimon's and large corporations from having nearly as much influence and power as they now have. Right. And I, it is, and I do want to make clear that hypocrisy was my word. But I, it is interesting because you do note that we're at a position where there is so little power among everyday people that the people in charge of fixing these systems are the people who benefit the most from it. And that that's pretty obviously an upside down system is really, really hard to change, right? We're not, I mean, you, you argue in some ways that we're not even all having the same conversation because Democrats, Republicans, the wealthy CEOs are essentially completely sidestepping this question of power and wealth. Uh, uh, yes, utterly sidestepping the question of power. And uh, you see, there are some very good ideas as to how to reform the system, but the system won't fundamentally be reformed unless power is restructured and reallocated. And you can't do that from the top down uh, because the Jamie Diamonds of the world don't want 
to do that fundamentally. I mean, they're in a very privileged position. It has got to come from everybody else. And therein lies the paradox and the difficulty. In other words, the vast majority of Americans have theoretically the voting power through our democracy to change the rules and make uh, our system much more equitable. But they, the majority can't come together. Uh, it's almost as if racism and xenophobia and uh, vicious politics have all intervened to make it harder for people to come together to fight the oligarchy. Uh, and if I weren't so optimistic, and we could get to my optimistic la my optimism later, if I weren't optimistic, I would say that uh, we're doomed, uh, that the only way we actually change the system and the power structure embedded in that system is through some sort of mass uprising revolution. Uh, I don't think that's necessary, and I'm afraid of it, to be perfectly candid. I think uh, historically revolutions can go in any direction. I mean, they're like, they're, they're, they're uh, impossible to control. Yeah. But historically, income inequality has almost always been a precursor to some kind of massive change, whether it was authoritarianism or revolution or some kind of big social change. Like, do you feel that we're laying the groundwork now for things that we can look back on historically and be pretty worried about? Well, I think social change is going to happen and must happen. The trends we're seeing now, uh, both with regard to inequality and racism and climate change and uh, all these others, uh, are not sustainable. The question is how change comes about. And if you look at the last Gilded Age, we're now in another Gilded Age, but if you look at the last Gilded Age when inequality was as wide as it is today and the captains of industry were as irresponsible uh, as they are today, uh, really the lackeys of the robber barons uh, took uh, sacks of cash literally, and put them down on the desks of pliant legislators in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, well, what happened after that point really is important to understand. It was not a revolution. It wasn't even understood as a dramatic reform. Uh, it was America and Americans, large numbers of people saying, wait a minute, what's happening now violates our values, uh, the basic tenets of this country, our ideals. And they rose up in various ways uh, all across the country. And we had what's come to be understood and known as the progressive era, starting in around 1901 and extending through the First World War and then picking up again, some historians might say, uh, with Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933. Mm -hmm. How much of that awareness in everyday people relies on understanding. And I want to go back to the, the idea of the rigging because I was talking to my 13 year old son about your book. And he said, well, what, why is it so bad if Jeff Bezos you, works really hard and creates Amazon and invents this incredible thing and changes all our lives and then makes a lot of money? He should make a lot of money. And I, yes, I think and, there's- and and people, um, excuse me for, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Molly. No, 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 please. I, I was yeah. just going to jump in and say that uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, there were probably a lot of 13-year-olds like your son and many, many other people who said, well, what's wrong with Cornelius Vanderbilt and Andrew Carnegie uh, and the other robber barons of the era 
uh, making huge amounts of money. They they were the they 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 founded the railroads and the oil companies and the, and the steel companies. Uh, they ushered America into a new era of industrialization. Uh, didn't they? Weren't they entitled? Uh, and I suppose what you could say in response is uh, yes, they were certainly entitled to make a lot of money, but were they entitled to undermine democracy with their money? Uh, were they entitled to keep millions of people in poverty? Uh, were they entitled to fight unions, uh, sometimes uh, really with a lot of bloodshed involved? Uh, were they entitled to use their wealth and their power in ways that actually hurt uh, millions of Americans? Uh, and you might say, uh, no. Antitrust law came out of uh, the Sherman Act of 19, 1890. And if we had antitrust laws today that were as vigorously employed as the antitrust laws were after Teddy Roosevelt became president, Amazon uh, would not be able to dominate, or for that matter, any of the other four or five major high-tech firms wouldn't be able to do what they're doing. Antitrust would prohibit that. Is there a point, I mean, it, obviously it's hard to pinpoint, but the, is there a point at which innovation and success starts to turn to corruption? Because really what you're arguing in this book in some ways is that there, there is no such thing as a free market, as we like to think of it. The rules are set by governments, influenced heavily by oligarchs, and that sometimes government and oligarchy are indistinguishable. Yes, uh, the, the, I think that's, that's certainly what I argue, and I think it is the case. Uh, we have been sold a lot of mythologies, uh, and the oligarchy and emerging oligarchy uh, has been responsible for selling a lot of mythologies to us, so we don't realize what's going on. One of the biggest mythologies is that the choice is between government or the free market, and, uh, and people don't understand that the free market itself uh, depends on rules, uh, thousands of rules, Everything from the nature of property, including intellectual property, how long intellectual property, patents, trademarks, and so on are going to be utilized. And I mentioned antitrust laws and anti-monopoly policies, uh, but also contract laws. Uh, you know, how are contracts going to be administered? What uh, is a fair contract? Liability laws. Uh, what 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 kind of activities are going to that generate harms are going to be recognized as harmful, and who is going to be able to collect on those? Bankruptcy laws. Uh, I mean, what? Who can with bankruptcy? Who's going to be shielded from having to repay? And who is who is going to be immunized? Who is not going to be immunized? Uh, and we could go through a very very long uh, list, but that list changes over time. The rules of the market are changing, and over the last forty years, they have changed dramatically as the power and the wealth at the top have changed the rules, have exerted their influence over legislators and regulators and others. Uh, I've seen this a very, a, a very close, Molly. I mean, one of the, when I was uh, director of policy planning in the Carter administration, uh, when I was uh, assistant to the Solicitor General in the Ford administration, and when I was Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, I, in each of those instances, I saw the power of wealth change the rules in favor of wealth. And in each of those time frames, it was greater and greater. I mean, uh, by the time I was Secretary of Labor, it was much more intense uh, than it had been before. And I did some work with the Obama administration, uh, and I saw it to an even greater extent then. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I wonder when you look at, because we can't say that people are not aware. There is, you know, obviously the anger over this system is what in many ways has led us to the political climate that we find ourselves in today. And I wonder when you look at that, how much, how much of that was exposed by the financial collapse in 2008? And let's be honest, the fact that there were not consequences for that, that the Obama administration did not punish banks or compensate consumers after that recession. How much of that do you think contributed to the uprising of, of anger that's found its way to populist politics? A lot of it. Before that time, uh, from the, let's say, early 1980s all the way through 2008, a lot of the middle class uh, who started to see their fortunes dimming and their wages stagnating, adjusted for inflation, uh, they used some, well, you might might say they bought into some mythologies. Uh, One was uh, that uh, the market knew best Uh, and there was nothing they could do about it. Uh, A lot of women went into paid work in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s in order to prop up uh, family incomes that were actually dropping because male wages were dropping, uh, because unions were being busted, uh, because there was more outsourcing and more uh, efforts to substitute uh, machinery for labor. We also saw through that period of time leading up to the financial crisis that uh, more and more people were working harder and harder. And right before the financial crisis, many of them were using their homes as piggy banks, basically uh, getting new loans or refinancing their homes or whatever have you. But it was that financial crisis that really um, took the blinders off of everybody's eyes. But it didn't do it in the same way. On the left, you had the brief, what was called the Occupy movement, that was angry about what had happened, but most of their angry was directed at big corporations and finance. And on the right, you had the Tea Party movement, uh, just as angry about what had happened, but most of their anger was directed at government. Uh, But you see, both sides were saying essentially the same thing. And the lineal descendants of both the Tea Party movement, the lineal descendant was ultimately Donald Trump in 2016. And the lineal descendant of the Occupy movement uh, was Bernie Sanders uh, in 2016. Those, those political movements and attitudes are still very much with us. Um, I feel like I've done a similar thing to the book, which is spend a lot of time on the problem. And I, would, I kept waiting to get to the solution. Now we've done the same thing because I want to get to people's questions. But the second part of your promise is how to fix it. And yet a big part of the conversation all throughout the book is how little power people have. So what do we do? Well, here's where my optimism comes in, uh, because I I think that uh, people are beginning to catch on, maybe not to every detail, uh, but the pandemic, and I wrote the book actually before the pandemic, the pandemic and uh, uh, the the movement against uh, institutional systemic racism and uh, some of the uh, anger we've seen now directed at incompetent government because government under Donald Trump was not able to do what many other governments around the world uh, in rich countries especially have been able to do in terms of containing the pandemic. I, a lot of people are seeing all of that, Molly, and yeah. and that is leading to uh, what I thought would take many more years, and that is uh, the beginning of a coalition, a very, very broad coalition 
uh, people who used to call themselves Republicans, may, now maybe they do or maybe they don't, but they're joining in league with a lot of Democrats. Many black people and white people are marching together uh, and joining together. We're seeing many young people who are getting very active in politics. Actually, the midterms of 2018, uh, to me, were a turning point in terms of young people and people of color and women getting more politically active. Uh, and the results were not only the takeover of, of the House by the Democrats again, but also huge numbers of uh, people, uh, women and people of color and young people in politics for the first time in, in certainly my my memory. And all of that, I think, is, is good because it enable, it's the beginning of people coming together to, say, to reclaim our democracy, to say, wait a minute, uh, the way we're going uh, doesn't work. We've got to uh, make democracy work. At the, at the very least, we've got to get big money out of politics, but there are many other things that need to happen. Uh, but also to reclaim our, our economy, uh, saying that the rules that we are, we are now working by are not good for most of us. Uh, they actually are siphoning off more and more wealth to the top. Yeah, you call it harsh capitalism. And I feel like there's no better term to, to, to apply to the way that people are experiencing capitalism under the pandemic, where economic assistance has gone to a lot of businesses and corporations, and the racial protests, which have been exposed over and over how economically unfair capitalism has been for a long time. But you also argue that 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 sort of the three legs of the oligarchy power stool are belief systems, essentially bribes and lobbying and division. How much are you worried about division? Because to hear me and my colleagues in the media tell it, that is the defining characteristic of American discourse right now. Well, I, 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 obviously, I don't want to be a cockeyed optimist. Uh, I mean, the uh, the three legs of the oligarchic stool um, are still with us selling the notion that the market knows best, you know, that the market sort of is, exists separate and apart from, from nature or is part of nature, um, and there's nothing we can do about it, uh, I think is, is, a, is a lie. Uh, people have got to understand the workings of the markets. I mean, bankruptcy law, for example, should be available to people on their first homes or their only homes. Bankruptcy should be available to students or former students who are laden with student debt. It used to be until the big banks changed bankruptcy laws. But, but we could go through all of the, the laws and regulations that really do need to be changed so that people have a better shot at making it. Uh, the other thing that I pointed out, and, and you just pointed out, is, is the divisiveness, the divide and conquer strategy of the oligarchy. Racism is, is sort of the oldest divide and conquer strategy. It's something that has been used in American politics for uh, since the start, since before uh, we had in America, but more intensively uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, in fact, when George H.W. Bush used Willie Horton uh, because Lee Atwater, uh, his advisor, uh, told him that that would sell and would win him uh, the election in 1988. Uh, that was an example of the worst forms of, of oligarchic use of racism, but it continues, and it's in both parties. Uh, and, and finally, it's very important that people understand that the bribes that are being paid by the oligarchy are not literal bribes. I mean, yes, they are bribes to to... Uh, to Congress people, to members of Congress and to senators and to uh, legislators, uh, state legislators, legislators and, and to governors. 
but we're talking about a, 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 a much larger sense of bribe. We've got so many people in the top 10% of the income ladder whose well-being and salary depends on ultimately getting paid by the oligarchy. Uh, and they are in the job. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't say they're in this job, but they really are in the job of advancing and protecting uh, the oligarchy. And I think uh, it's important that that 10% understand that they are, they are part of an unsustainable system. Well, and I guess fundamentally, that's the question. How unsustainable is the system? Not just politically and in terms of the rage and the potential for revolution, even if revolution is defined as the election of Donald Trump. Is it also economically unsustainable to create a scenario in which most people can't even afford your goods and services? It's completely unsustainable economically because the more money and wealth go to the top, the less there is for everybody else to buy goods and services with. So you get this top-heavy economy. The fact of the matter is we know it's people in the bottom 80% who do much, much of the spending. The economy depends on spending. This economy, 70% of the United States economy is consumer spending. It's personal expenditures. Uh, if people don't have the money, they can't keep the economy going. Uh, this is why this ludicrous uh, debate that's going on in Congress right now, uh, where the re Republicans saying $600 a week uh, extra unemployment insurance is too much, uh, people will be deterred from getting jobs, misses the whole point. Uh, first of all, there are not many jobs. Secondly, the jobs that are there are, are very often unsafe. But thirdly, most importantly, people need extra cash in order to be able to turn around and buy things. And if you if you reduce that $600 a week uh, by nearly as much as the Republicans now want to reduce it, uh, we're going to lose more jobs because they're not going to be as much of a multiplier effect in the economy. Uh, and that's really why the total Amer Amer American economy, really, even before the pandemic, Molly, was very fragile. Uh, that fragility uh, we've seen again and again. Uh, there's too much debt. Too many people are in debt. They are in debt because they there's no other way of maintaining their spending. And if they don't maintain their spending, the economy collapses. So was it always destined for some sort of, well, collapse? I mean, we're buying goods that cost less than it costs to an actually manufacture them and destroying the climate in the process. Like, it sort of seems... Is that why you see the Jamie Diamonds of the world taking these kind of baby steps towards it? Like, do they think that there's an incremental solution? I, it's a good question. And, and I have had conversations, not with Jamie Diamond about this. I've had conversations with others. I think the, the problem is uh, what you might be called a collective action problem. That is, there might be individual billionaires who understand that their long-term interest is on a more equitable society. That is, there's no way uh, that people are gonna continue to use Amazon uh, if Jeff Bezos uh, and others like him uh, siphon off uh, so much of the, of the income and wealth of the country. Uh, but Jeff Bezos alone, uh, even though he has extraordinary wealth and power, uh, can't actually change the system and probably has very little incentive in the short term to change the system anyway. If you go back to the first decade of the 20th century, the progressive era that I mentioned before, what was interesting to me about that is that you had uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt as president in 1901, and many of the captains of industry began, I say many, not all, certainly not Cornelius Vanderbilt, and, but maybe Andrew Carnegie in a way, began to understand that unless the rules of the game were fundamentally changed, 
so that there was much more widespread uh, wealth and much more widespread well-being. Not only did they risk revolution, but they also couldn't keep their own economy going. Henry Ford understood that his, his employees and all other employees needed a raise because otherwise they couldn't afford to buy Model T Fords. Uh, and so you, you begin to get this understanding among even the, the wealthiest business leaders, uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to come by. Right. And it's fundamentally self-interested. So it has a big hill to climb when it comes up against the other self-interest, which is their billions of dollars. Exactly. And in your book, you do talk about how, as a contrast to the American system, China has this huge and very, you know, and an ability to have a very deliberate investment in productivity. And you say the key to our economic growth is American productivity. So I think there's an idea that UBI suddenly means people get a check and that's all we ever do to grow our economy. And clearly that's not the case. That's right. Uh, it, it means that people have the wherewithal to get more training, more education, more skills, uh, become more productive. And a point that really does need to be made uh, when we're talking about international trade or international competitiveness is that the competitiveness of the United States or any nation depends uniquely on the people of that country and their ability to be productive. Uh, it's not the corporations headquartered in that country because all these big corporations are becoming global very, very rapidly. Uh, many American corporations are doing their research and development all over the world. The, the real issue is what is learned here and how well is it learned and how productive people can be here. And that's why investments in education and job training and lifelong learning are so absolutely critical and are uh, just as important as investments in infrastructure and investments in basic R&D. Let's talk about those big tech companies. We have a question from a listener, and I think this is very relevant because those hearings did just happen and it was sort of historic. It did feel like a real Gilded Age moment where the heads of these four big trusts came the Financial Times, I think, did a piece just a couple of months ago talking about Mark Zuckerberg specifically as an American oligarch. And when you look at these companies and the, the, the size and power that they wield, does that seem like an obvious case of antitrust to you? Does it seem like that's an example of where a breakup should occur? Or as this person puts it, what can be done to redistribute economic influence? Yes. When we, when we, when we think about antitrust, uh, most of us think immediately about breaking up companies like Ma Bell or the uh, Standard Oil Trust of the beginning of the last century. But there are many other things that can be done. Uh, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, who incidentally, I think during the course of the hearings themselves, just those hours, I uh, calculated um, his income went up or his wealth went up about $11 million. And just a few days before, uh, Bezos, actually, he increased his wealth in one day by $13 billion. But let's let's talk about what can be done. There is absolutely no reason why Zuckerberg should be able to use the wealth of his company, Facebook, and and continue to buy uh, Instagram and uh, and other companies that could have been competitors. Uh, in fact, uh, I think that antitrust law, if it really had any teeth in it, like it used to, would prohibit those kind of purchases and would unwind them right now. 
uh, would say, no, you've got to get rid of Instagram. You've got rid of, get rid of all the other companies that you've acquired uh, because they, are, they could be freestanding competitors to you. Uh, you also can't favor your own products. Uh, if you're Google or if you're Amazon, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence that Google and Amazon and even Facebook in a slightly indirect way uh, have uh, steered consumers toward their own favored products. Uh, that actually uh, is illegal under the antitrust laws. That that can be stopped. It should be stopped. There should be no favoritism whatsoever. There should that used to be called an illegal tying arrangement under the antitrust laws. Um, there there are many ways, and we could you know until people's eyes glazed over Molly, we could go through them. But there there are ways in which practices. Uh, business practices of the four or five major high-tech firms need to be altered uh, and need, need to be, uh, they need to be forced to be altered. They're not going to alter it uh, simply because uh, it would be a nice thing to do. Right. I feel like this is where the misunderstanding of the rigging or the lack of understanding of the rigging comes into place. Like if my answer to my child was, Jeff Bezos built a great business. He should have paid taxes on that business. He should not have allowed, you know, he should not have written laws that benefited his business. That it that there's a point at which you exceed fair competition because monopoly is like the natural goal of a really good businessman. That's right. That, and and, regulation and even, is needed. Yeah. That, precisely. And even even uh, intellectual property, the misuse yeah. of patents and trademarks by high tech, but also by the pharmaceutical industry in terms of uh, entrenching themselves, making it very hard for new entrants to get in. That is a violation. It's an antitrust violation. It should be considered to be uh, a monopolization. Much of the, These big companies also, the tech companies, are, are acting as monopsonists as well. That's a fancy term, meaning they're using their power, not just vis-a-vis -vis consumers, uh, but also suppliers. Amazon uh, is making it, is holding down prices for all sorts of suppliers, uh, making it much, much, reducing the incentives for people to actually create businesses. You know, the United States is supposed to be this font of new, new businesses. Actually, uh, the rate of new business formation has uh, been cut in half even before the pandemic, from 2000 to January of 2020, the rate of new business formations dropped by, by half, uh, in large part, in my view, uh, because of the dominance of these uh, big, big corporations, particularly high tech. We'll keep moving through these questions here. It, you, uh, you talk about in the book, I'm going to read this because it was so notable that it had been written before the pandemic. And you said that when it comes to people coming together and creating these great changes, quote, sometimes it's an economic shock. And that you talk about, you know, the depression or the Great Recession. And you said, sometimes we just reach a tipping point where the frustrations of average Americans turn into action. And this listener's question is, if the depression in World War II brought us together in a common experience, can this pandemic also become a pivot point? And if so, to what do we pivot? A better democracy or more oligarchy? Well, that's the question. Uh, you, that's exactly the question I was going to ask. Uh, where do we pivot? I mean, what, I think that obviously where we need to pivot uh, is a stronger democracy uh, capable of changing the rules of the market in just the ways we've been talking about so that they are more equitable, so that the results of the market are more equitable, uh, so that the pre-distributions, in fact, this is something that I think a lot of people don't fully focus on, but it's very important that we focus most of our attention on redistribution. 
That is, after the market has done its work, what then needs to be redistributed from the wealthy to the poor or from the rich uh, to the working class. But the real, uh, I think, more important distribution occurs inside the market. And they, I think one way we might see this is a pre-distribution. And it's mostly from average people upward. I mean, the big banks, for example, Jamie Dimon's bank and other major banks on Wall Street uh, are enjoying a huge pre-distribution upward because they're too big to fail. After 2008, uh, they're, they're, they're even bigger than they were before. And th that, that, that guarantee, that too big to fail guarantee, implicit guarantee from the government, is worth uh, tens of billions of dollars uh, to the big banks. That's an example of a pre-distribution upward. And there are many, many others. I actually wanted to ask you about this. This is very specific and maybe slightly off topic, but you mentioned that that, that kind of Im this implied subsidy, uh, a hidden $83 billion in government insurance. I didn't totally follow that. Can you explain how that works? How does that translate into sort of a subsidy for banks like that? Oh, uh, very simply, because everybody doing business with a bank assumes that because the biggest banks will get bailed out if they ever get into trouble, we don't have to worry about them getting into trouble. In other words, you as a business person dealing with a major bank, you are actually willing to settle for maybe not quite as good a deal as you might get from a very much smaller bank because the biggest bank has this implicit guarantee from the government. And it's worth, studies have shown, it's worth to the biggest banks $83 billion per year. That's not chunk change. Yeah. Got it. Now I understand. I'm so excited that I got to ask you this teaching question directly. Speaking of moral hazard, we have a question about how, uh, very specifically, again, about how the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, and this is a big part of your book, and you talk about Jamie Dimon advocating for this, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act affected where we're at today. Starting in the 19, early 1980s, the banks uh, began having enough political power because they were getting to that wealth tipping point, uh, that they began chipping away at the many laws and regulations that were put into effect in the 1930s, after the great crash of 1929, when the banks uh, really did pull the economy with them. And those there was not just one of them. I mean, Glass-Steagall was one of them, but there were many of them. Uh, and the banks uh, were chipping away at them constantly after about 19, starting with the Reagan administration. So by the time of the Clinton administration, the banks argued, well, look, Glass-Steagall is just is the last little remaining bit. And we can do most of what we want anyway. So it's not really significant. Uh, why don't you just give it to us? And the efficiency gains will be much greater uh, than any risks uh, and so the Clinton administration, along with Republicans in Congress, uh, said fine. Well, the sum total of all of that chipping away, uh, including the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, meant that there was really nothing between the kind of explosion we saw in 2007 and 2008 and uh, the banks. The, the casino, uh, I mean, finance really did... Uh, have no restraints left. Uh, uh, Glass-Steagall basically kept investment banking separate from commercial banking. Uh, but once, but that was again, that was the last brick in the in the in the wall taken down, uh, and that meant uh, basically finance could do anything. And, and right now, Molly, there's not much left. I mean, there is the Dodd-Frank Act, 
but that has been whittled back too, step by step. Jamie Dimon and others on Wall Street, they've done everything they can to, to, to get rid of the Dodd-Frank and uh, the Trump administration has been very helpful to them. Uh, so the big banks, I would say, are quite fragile right now. You, um, this seems like a good point to draw a distinction. You, there's a quote in the book, Henry Demarest Lloyd, liberty produces wealth and wealth destroys liberty. And this feels like a good point to say that it seems to me that what you're arguing for is regulated capitalism, that it is unregulated capitalism. It's capitalism with no rules. That is what is ultimately suicide for societies and the planet and democracy, maybe, that you're not saying chuck it all out and have a socialist society, which I think is an, is a, is an argument that gets lobbed a lot. No, I think these, these, these big terms like capitalism and socialism um, really hide all of the interesting and important detail. I am not arguing for a regulated capitalism. Capitalism is now very regulated. I mean, uh, there are huge subsidies going to the big banks, huge subsidies going to pharmaceutical companies uh, through intellectual property laws, huge uh, uh, subsidies going to uh, oil and gas uh, and uh, military uh, contractors. You know, this is not a deregulated economy in any any way, shape, or form. It's just regulated in the wrong direction. There, I want to I want to stress again: there is no such thing as a free market without government setting the rules of the game. And those rules of the game are regulations. Uh, I mean, we might call them laws. We might call them whatever we want to call them. It doesn't matter. There are rules. If you take away all rules, you don't have a free market. What you have is is survival of the fittest. You have you have uh, sort of a state of nature in which just the strongest and most powerful can beat down everybody else. That's not a civilization. That's 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 you know we would we would all be constantly in a state of fear uh, if that were in fact where we were living. I don't know exactly what socialism is supposed to mean, but I do know that we do have to have rules and regulations and laws that make capitalism work for most people instead of a handful. Uh, we need investments in people, in education, job training, research and development, roads and bridges, infrastructure of all sorts, uh, because those investments public investments are as important as private investments. We need social insurance uh, because social insurance enables us to be safe and feel safe. Uh, and we can see in this pandemic, the mere, I mean, the fact that we are the only country that doesn't provide, you know, uh, sick leave, paid sick leave. I mean, we all suffer because there is no paid sick leave for most most workers, so that if they get sick or if they feel they, they have the coronavirus, uh, they dare not take time off. That hurts all of us. And so that that is, that is a kind of lacking that is, uh, that, that, is, that is harmful, broadly harmful. Finance is, of course, a big part of your book and a big part of this argument. Does public banking, this person asks, factor into helping to dismantle the rigged system? Uh, if by public banking, um, the viewer, listener is, is suggesting a bank that is not, a not-for-profit bank, a bank that is run according to rules that are set up by not its investors, but by the public that uses the bank, its, con its consumers, essentially. Uh, yes, I think that would be preferable, uh, just like I think that uh, we should move to the kind of healthcare system we had, uh, health insurance system we had in the 1950s, uh, which was not-for-profit. It was actually the big blues. You know, we, we, we evolved into a for-profit, private, 
uh, health insurance system, really because the, the, the not-for-profit system was losing ground in a kind of uh, uh, competitive process uh, in which uh, it, you know, the only people left for the not-for-profits were people who actually had very, very high health costs. Well, you know, we, it, it just makes sense to move back to a not-for-profit healthcare system and one that is ideally single-payer. Uh, just on, on the grounds of, you know, look at every other system. I have so many questions of my own, but I will be disciplined and keep reading these ones because they're also really good. Do you support employee ownership as a means of broadening the ownership of capital? Uh, yes. And this is an old idea. I wrote a piece for the Times recently talking about profit sharing and employee ownership. Uh, and it goes back to before 1916. Uh, there was a great wave in the progressive era uh, that I was referring to before, a lot of big companies uh, began offering their employees profits, a share of the profits, and a share of the the, the shares of the firm, literally shares in the firm. And, uh, and that became very, very popular up through the 1980s when the takeovers occurred, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the unfriendly takeovers that forced companies to focus only on their shareholders and not on their workers or their communities. It, should we specify that that's different from the kind of employee ownership that we see in the tech industry? We're both in the Bay Area where employees are granted stock options and that makes them feel as though they have ownership in the company. That's not the same thing. Well, it's, it's very different. Um, and one of the biggest differences has to do with who gets the shares uh, and why they get the shares. I mean, uh, if you go back in American history between 19... 19- 08 and uh, the 1980s, many, many large companies offered their employees shares of stock as a way of giving the employees not only a fair part of the profits, but also a stake psychologically in the success of the firm. When high-tech companies are giving out shares of stock, they're doing it to attract and keep talent. They're not doing it for their, I mean, Amazon is not giving shares of stock to its warehouse workers. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I would wish it did. It it was giving out little two shares of stock a year to its warehouse workers until about four years ago uh, and then stopped doing that. No, uh, Jeff Bezos and and all of the other high tech moguls are giving out shares of stock uh, to people they want to attract and keep as a way of of motivating the quote unquote talent, uh, a very different, very different motive and a very different uh, goal. Um, and an output uh, outcome than we had uh, in the first part of the uh, 20th century. If you could, or maybe could have written a prescription for how to stabilize the U S economy in the wake of the pandemic, what would you do? What would someone put it this way? What concerns you the most as we deal with this pandemic, what should be done to help stabilize our economy? Well, the, the economy and the pandemic are, are linked, but they're different. That is, there is no way we can get the economy going again until the pandemic is contained. Uh, That's very important. We have a lot of people using, in in very loose ways, this term stimulus. Uh, But we're not, the goal is not to stimulate the economy because you can't stimulate an economy that is is fraught, uh, overrun uh, with COVID-19. You know, people are not going to go to the malls uh, or into theaters or concerts or into airplanes uh, as long as they fear for their lives. And that's uh, as you know, this this is where a lot of confusion lies, because Donald Trump, even Monday, Trump said we need to reopen. 
let's let's reopen everything. The reason that so much is closing now, the reason that we are going into a, another economic dip is because we've gone into another resurgence of the virus because we didn't close down appropriately. We didn't uh, have the testing and the tracing uh, that we needed. Uh, it's the coronavirus is the problem, folks. And um, we do need to do everything we can to, uh, for humane reasons, number one, uh, but number two, for the economy, to contain this virus. The, the fact that we in the United States, with 4% of the world's population, have 20 to 25% of all of the cases of this virus uh, and the deaths uh, is, uh, I think, testament to how extraordinarily we botched this whole thing. Uh, you know, people who have friends in Italy uh, or in, or even in France or in Sweden or, or certainly in Norway. I mean, these, the average person in Norway or in or in Italy, they are right now. They're 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 in restaurants. They are actually enjoying themselves. Uh, they are living a different life than we are living. Uh, and the reason we are living the life we are living uh, with masks and with social distancing, hopefully, hopefully, uh, is because we are still in the midst of a virus and they aren't. I do wonder how the emergence of the virus and this sort of massive social change that we're starting to see, how, does that change, if anything, the conclusions in the book? It's like a moment in time where you wrote right up to this massive upheaval and I wonder if that changes your sense of our potential unity or of the path that we're on. Uh, well, as I suggested, I, I think that I have been impressed with the unity. Black people and white people getting together, uh, uh, marching and demonstrating and, and, and being activists with regard to ending systemic racism. So many young people getting involved in American politics uh, so many, even the Bernie people getting together with the Joe Biden people. I mean, this would not have happened were it not for the plight that we are now suffering. Uh, and part of the plight, let's be clear, I, I, I don't want to get too partisan here, uh, and I don't mean to be partisan, but the pandemic would not be this bad if it weren't for uh, how badly Donald Trump blew it. I mean, his uh, his inability to use the Defense Production Act, unwillingness to use the Defense Production Act to get critical materials, his his unwillingness to assert leadership, uh, his playing down the seriousness of the virus for months, uh, his giving responsibility uh, to the states and locales uh, who, who who handled it in a haphazard way, as only the states and locales would, because we don't, you know, they are not national governments. So Donald Trump is part of the problem. Part of the problem also is we don't have a public system in this country, and we don't have a health insurance system in this country. And I think now people are beginning to say, wait a minute, this is crazy. Uh, we do need uh, a, a health insurance system that covers everybody. We do need a public health system. We do need uh, paid sick leave for everybody and so on. So I think to that extent, the pandemic has been educational. I guess what worries me most right now is that there's no end in sight. Uh, we're likely to go into a, a second wave, uh, which also suggests and means a second economic downturn, uh, possibly deeper than the one we're already in. That anger, um, that it's going to generate a lot of anger and a lot of uh, destitution, a lot of suffering, that could backfire in, in so many ways. I, there's no reason to suppose it's going to be a constructive thing. Uh, it, it could be I hope not, I pray not, 
it could be destructive. We could just end up being angrier and angrier at each other. We have about five minutes left. So that's the point in our program where there's time for just one last question. And I guess the question I want to ask you is, so much of what you're saying, I think, seems and feels really obvious to a lot of people, especially right now. And yet it's clearly not, right? There are clearly arguments on the other side. There are clearly people who are saying publicly, the system is working, the market is working, the market will work, the economy will right itself. It, what do you say to them? Like, is there an argument I mean, that I, you think you have that will that will sort of get us over that dogmatic hump? You know, I mean, I, I don't know, Molly. I, I, it's, it's very much like, you know, people said in 1929 after the crash, uh, Herbert Hoover was saying, oh, well, the economy will right itself. Uh, the system is, is fundamentally stable. It is perfectly fine. Well, you, you had to go through a couple of years of that to see how hollow uh, all of those arguments were. Uh, now, are we approaching a 1933 again? Uh, and if so, will Joe Biden be another FDR? Uh, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, but there are a lot of crazy arguments. And, and I'm not talking only about the Sinclair broadcasting Fox News conspiracy stuff. I'm talking about just a bad economics, uh, a bad understanding of our political and democratic system. So until we get that straight, and until everybody reads my book, no, I don't mean that. Uh, until we do, though, at least at least get get all of the understand the system, uh, and that's 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 critical. I mean, people, a democracy depends upon people being literate about the system, and and hopefully, uh, uh, my small contribution uh, will advance that. Thank you very much. That is a perfect place to close with the book plug and everything. It is such a shame you can't be out signing books in the lobby, but. We'll do whatever the virtual version of that is. Our great thanks to Robert Reich, author of The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. I hope we did some fixing here today. Uh, and we encourage you to pick up your copy of Robert Reich's book through your local independent bookstore, I think is the appropriate plea here. That, that is. Thank you, Molly. I really Thank appreciate you. it. And thanks to everybody who joined us online. We really appreciate you showing up in the middle of the day. I'm Molly Wood, and this virtual Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.